if you take these things in her self-control chapter and you actually role-play this with your children so they practice it and do it, this can be an absolute game changer. I want to introduce Dr. Charles Sophie. He's a board-certified psychiatrist. He's a former medical director of the Department of Child and Family Services here in L.A., the largest agency of its type in the entire United States. One of the things I like about the book, and I'm doing shameless plugs for this book, Family Values, Reset, Trust, Boundaries, and Connection with Your Child. One of the things I love about this is it really gives some red flags, some ways for parents to notice, recognize when a child is hurting, when a child is having problems, because you start out by saying, we've got to have a baseline, and you've got to compare your child to baseline. Right. I could come in and look at a child, even as a professional, and until I know what's normal for the child, I don't know whether he or she has deviated from some kind of norm. But parents know what that norm is. Right. Or should know what that norm is. Yeah, they should know what that norm is. You talk about in the book, part one is finding the reset button and parenting with a new lens. And you didn't write this book for the pandemic, but it becomes acutely relevant because of the pandemic. Correct, yeah. And you talk about parenting with a new lens. What do you mean by that? Well, I think many parents feel that they're stuck or it's too late, or I came from not great role models myself. What good can I do? You know, I'm only doing what I came from. And that's what I'm trying to show them. It's not, you don't have to live with that. It's never too late. You can always be a better parent, even if you have an adult child. So it's never too late. And it's always should be invigorating to be able to reset yourself and look through a different lens. And that lens isn't going to come unless you take a good, hard look at yourself and understand that where you came from doesn't mean that's where you have to stay. And many people say, and I'm sure you've heard it many times, I'm not going to do what my parents, I'm going to do the exact opposite. But they end up running right into that and becoming their parents. And that's because they never looked at themselves and they didn't look at what they didn't like about what their parents did, understanding their parents probably did the best they could. And what do you want to do differently? And so that's what I talk about in part one. What can we do differently that's easy and simple to fix so that you can reset yourself and look through a different lens? You and I have talked many times about generational legacy. Right. We all grow up with some aspects of our upbringing that we don't like and some that we do, when you say parents have to take a look at themselves, you got to decide what did you carry from your parents into your parenting that's toxic. If your parents blew up and yelled and screamed and cussed and slammed things around and you see yourself doing that, you go, okay, this is a generational legacy. I'm carrying forward things that I lived with and I shouldn't be carrying these forward. And that's right. what you're saying. Let's look at this with a new lens. And you got to be willing to take a hard look at yourself and say, okay, am I doing the sins of my father? Am I doing right. the sins of my mother? Right. Am I doing right. the same things they did to me? Am I doing it to my own kids? Because I'll hear parents all the time say, 
oh, I hate it when my mother did this, and I'm doing the same damn thing. Right. They run right back into it. Also, when they're being triggered by their child, you know, the five-year-old that's having a tantrum is making you angry, probably because that five-year-old in you isn't dealt with. It's looking at those triggers within yourself as well, because all of a sudden it's a five-year-old fighting with a five-year-old. Yeah, because you never move past that. Right. You spent 22 years yes. at DCFS, and you said whenever you went to these homes, the biggest things you saw missing were safety and permanence. Correct. Emotional and physical safety and permanence. They didn't have a physical home that was safe and permanent. They didn't have an emotionally safe and permanent home either. Parents were immature. Parents were on drugs or maybe not. But there's lots of domestic violence and lots of issues that are being triggered in parents that are not allowing them to stay emotionally safe and stable for their kids and permanent. And then physically, they're not giving them a home or, you know, the violence that's going on around them. Now, this has nothing to do with socioeconomics. It has nothing to do with education. I know your practice, and you've got billionaires in your practice. You make it your business to see pro bono, indigent patients. You see them all up and down the socioeconomic and educational ladder. Homes where a child doesn't feel safe physically or emotionally is not limited to any one group, right? No. Absolutely. It has nothing to do with money, culture, tradition, nothing. It has to do with that person. And some of the most dysfunctional homes are some of the most affluent homes. Right. And some of the poorest homes are the safest homes. Yeah. So when you're listening to this right now, I don't want you to get defensive. And maybe you're a parent, maybe you're a grandparent thinking about what your grandkids are living with or kids in your church or neighborhood are living with, we have to take care of each other. And right now, we were talking about mandated reporters weren't there to look after these kids. You don't have to be contractually mandated to be someone that looks out for a kid. Correct. If you have a kid in the neighborhood, and I've dealt with situations over the 20 years of Dr. Phil where the neighbor had four kids, but they only ever saw three playing outside. Right. And after three or four years, they find out one of them's not playing outside because they're locked under the stairs. Right. And when they call DCFS and they go in there, maybe on their third visit, they finally hear some scratching and they go, look, and here's just one kid for some reason locked under the stairs and malnourished, et cetera, et cetera. So we've got to be eyes and ears, but it starts with you. If you're a parent or a grandparent, you've got to ask, he's talking about safety and permanence. Do the children in your orbit, whether you're a parent or a grandparent, do they experience physical safety? Do they feel confident that they're protected by you, by the adults in their life, and that they're not in danger from you. And the same with emotional safety. You say it refers to a state that a child is given to live in where relationships have attachment. Right. Predictability. Right. They should be able to predict their parent is going to be there a hundred out of a hundred times. Right. The consistency. They need to count on that. Otherwise, the floor is always falling out. They never feel safe or secure. 
I did an interview today with a set of parents from Uvalde, and their child was murdered by the shooter in Uvalde. It's so interesting that this is right at the top of your book because they said, we didn't keep our child physically safe. And of course, they did everything, everything they, they could. could. There was nothing they could have done. Right. But what they're holding themselves to standard-wise is they're saying, we didn't keep our child physically safe. We feel like she didn't feel emotionally safe because they think she was in there for 77 minutes. Yeah. And the children were calling on the phone for over 40 minutes to the 911 dispatcher, two phone calls totaling over 40 minutes saying, please come help us. Why won't you come help us? He is here. He's shooting people in the next room right now. Why won't you come help us? And they were just crazed. And helpless. Because of it. And they were saying, so we know she didn't feel emotionally safe. Right. She was probably saying, where's my mommy? Where's my daddy? Right. Right up until she got shot. I asked them straight up, do you feel like you failed your daughter? And they said, yes, we didn't keep her physically or emotionally safe. Right. And we open your book and you say the number one thing is provide yourself physical and emotional safety. Right. Now, they did and think they didn't because of what happened. But every parent that's listening to us right now has the chance to do that. Yes, they do. They have the chance to do what you're saying. And I hope they do it. I really do. It's the beginning of everything, right? It's the foundation for every core of your child to feel safe. They just need to feel safe. But in the real world, when parents try to do this, the kid, you call it shaking them off, that they act like they don't want that. Like, oh, yeah, I'm fine. Leave yeah. me alone. Leave me alone. What do you tell parents when they get the eye roll and I'm fine, leave me alone? That's a great sign. You're not supposed to be their friend. They're not going to like what you're doing. That's how you know it's the right thing because they're going to fight it and be resistant. So just stick with it. And eventually they learn that that's what it means. I love you. I'm here and I'm not moving. When I was reading the first draft of your manuscript, it made me think of a friend that I had named John Maloney in high school. This was really a good looking kid. He was blonde and just ripped six pack. This was the toughest kid I think I ever met. I mean, he'd fight a buzzsaw. He didn't yeah. care. We were at my house one night in the winter in Kansas City, and there was an ice storm. And we were going to go watch the basketball game at our high school. We went bounding down the stairs to leave. And my mother said, whoa, 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 where are you going? I said, we're going to the basketball game. She said, oh, no, you're not. You're not going anywhere. It's slick out there. Just get back upstairs and think of something else to do. And I know there wasn't any point in arguing. So yeah. Yeah. I turned around, went back up there, and I looked over at John, and he was kind of trying to hide looking out the window and didn't understand why. And I kind of went around and looked at him, and he had tears running down his face. Hmm. I thought, you know, Wow, he must have really yeah. wanted to see that basketball game. <laughs> and I said, hey, man, are you okay? He stood there for a minute and said, 
I just wish one time in my life somebody cared enough about me to tell me I couldn't go somewhere because it was too dangerous. So sad. He said, never in my life has anybody ever told me, no, I couldn't go somewhere because it would put me in danger. I just never heard that before in my life. And in that moment, I understood why he was so tough, why he was so get them before they get me, why he was so hard. Very defended against the pain. Yeah, it was just his way of defending himself against the world, and he was so touched. I was like, oh, God, it's her again. You yeah, know, so right. you go back upstairs, don't right. even argue. But it's her love again. Uh, yeah, and he saw it that way. Right. I took it for granted. He right. saw it that way. Right. It's really interesting. Yeah. Every kid craves it. Yeah, every kid craves and it. And they will fight it. So when your kids roll their eyes, when they try to say, oh, come on. Let me tell you, at some level, it means something to them. Maybe they won't acknowledge it for 10 years, but it's not your job to make them happy. It's your job to keep them safe. Right. Physically and emotionally. Yeah. It's so funny that that came back to me when I read that first draft of the manuscript. It was so insightful. And I hope all my listeners will take heed to that right now and ask yourself, if you don't have that, What can you do in your family to make that part of your existence right now? I always tell parents, for example, after a divorce or after some big change or trauma in the family, one thing the kid needs to see is that there's somebody around that's continuing to run the business of the family. Correct. Parents often go the other way and say, well... This has been really tough, so I'm going to, I'll be indulgent right now. That's the time that they need to still do their homework, still get in bed at the same time. That's when they need to say, hey, it seems like everything's falling apart, but yet it's business as usual. So all the rules still apply. I guess my world's not falling apart. That's right. That's the message. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street. Essential television. And that's why I, I part of the reason writing this book is whenever we have a safety, a plan for a family to get back together and reunify in the, in the county or in DCFS, it's built on building and teaching parents how to build emotional and, and physical safety and permanence for their child. Then we could put a kid, a child back in a home. So if a family doesn't have that right now, you want to avoid the system, read the book and do the things. It's not that hard. It's not that hard, but it's only not that hard if you do this on purpose. Correct. It's not a matter of just saying, I want to be better. It's a matter of saying, I've got a plan to be better. Correct. Yes. Chapter two of your book, you say, change yourself, change your child. Right. Because they do mirror you. I think we get out of the universe what we put out. Yes. We put something in the universe, it comes back. Right. And you put something out to your child, it comes back. Right. Talk about that some. What do you mean specifically when you say change yourself, change your child? Take 
self-inventory. Look at yourself. Look at where you want to be, what you want to shed, what you want to change, and then start to role model it. Because what you role model is 100% what your child's going to do. Even if they don't do it in front of you, they're going to do it when they're not in front of you. How many times do you hear, oh, your child's a role model citizen in somebody else's home, but they won't put their dishes in the sink after dinner. But you know that they've been watching you do it. They're not going to do it for you, maybe, because the last thing they want to do is make you happy. But at the end of the day, they're going to role model you. And that's what it means. Yeah. And you've got some exercises in the book for people to do to kind of yeah. take this inventory. But you can't really do this if you're not willing to forget about being defensive, forget about how it may look, forget about how you may grade your own paper and not like the grade. You got to be really willing to look at yourself and say, how am I doing? Ego aside. Yeah. This is about your kid. Yeah. Because if you really want the best for your kid, ego is not your amigo. No, exactly. <laughs> you got to right. kick that to the curb. <laughs> exactly. Because that's what's getting in the way in the first place. Yeah. You have needs that are not being met and you're putting them first. And in fact, if you put your child first, your needs will be met. Yeah. It's interesting that even though these children come from us and there's genetic components and stuff, they're not mini-me's. They have their own personalities. Right. They have their own nuances and stuff. And we have to allow for that. And respect it. Yeah. And embrace it. Because the last thing a child needs to feel is that you don't like them or who they are or how they maneuver because they're going to do it more, number one. And number two, teach them how to use it as a strength. Yeah, they're going to be different. They should be different. You know my two boys. Yes. They're very different. They are. From each other. Yeah. But they're very successful uniquely in their own ways, right. even though they're very different. Very different. Yep. I've always tried to really embrace and endorse those differences. You have to. Jordan's got... A hundred percent more tattoos than I do. Really? I didn't notice. Because <laughs> I have zero. Right. <laughs> He's nice. got a shitload. Right. But that's him. I wanted him to have none, but I realized that's who he is. Right. Why squash it? And my other son, Jay, has none. Right. And Jay getting tattoos would be as unnatural as Jordan having none. Right. So you got to meet them where they are. You have to. Otherwise, they feel bad about themselves. Self-esteem plummets. Yeah. Self-worth isn't there. What's the point? You're only going to have to repair it anyway. Yeah. Jordan used to come in sometimes and he would have bright blue hair. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say, what the hell is that? Robin would say, are you okay with that bright blue hair? I'd say, hey, listen, anything you can wash off, I'm good with right. <laughs> until he's 18. Right. And then I got a suspicion it's going to be something you can't wash right. off. And it was. <laughs> sure enough, it was. Right. But he makes it work, right? Of course. And it's part of who he is. Yeah. You got to meet him where they are. You can't do that if you don't understand your own baggage. Right. Because if you have a need to control who they are, that's not really about them. Right. That's about you needing to control them. These kids need a lot of validation. They need a lot of individuality, lot. and they're intimidated. A lot of these kids are intimidated by things they used to take in stride. Yep. Have you seen that? hundred percent. I mean, kids that didn't have anxiety now have a lot more. Kids who already had some have a lot 
like they have an actual disorder at this point. Some of it's OCD, some of it's generalized anxiety, but they don't want to leave the house. They don't want to separate. They don't, social anxiety. You know, it's reached levels where kids were used to being home in a little cocoon now. Dr. Shafali, acclaimed New York Times bestselling author, international speaker, clinical psychologist. She's an expert in family dynamics. I want parents to understand that it is the natural thing as kids get into their teenage years and early teens, and then more so in the later teens, for the child to branch off and break away from the parent, right? I've often told them the more they dominate and control their child, the more radical that breakaway will be. If you let the child be an individual growing up, then that'll be a gradual individuation. If you don't, it will be a more radical, rebellious sort of thing, whatever it takes in their mind to get away and stand on their own two feet. But it's going to happen. It's supposed to happen, right? It's supposed to happen. And sometimes parents will extol the child's virtues and say to me, my child is so good. My child and I talk every single day and I'm my child's best friend. And, you know, for me as a psychologist, it's just one red flag after another oh red my flag gosh. <laughs> after yeah. another red flag, yeah. because the child is supposed to be moving away from you and discovering who it is they are and not be enmeshed and stuck to your apron strings. Right. So parents mistake closeness for enmeshment and enmeshment for closeness. And that is because of the parents own toxic desires to feel needed to feel like they are still worthy, that they have an identity. And that's really one of the greatest parental pitfalls is the parent's own need to be significant in the child's eyes. And in doing that, they use their children for their sense of worth and identity and never let the child find their way. And that's why we're raising this generation of these very fragile children and very enmeshed, overly identified as being parents' parents. And uh, this is a, a failure, I believe. And we need to remedy it uh, with compassion and understanding, but we need to do so quite immediately. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. You have tips on parenting, and your number two tip, if I can just read this, it says, reframe every struggle with your child as an invitation for your personal growth and awareness. When you make this internal pivot, you begin to shift how you view your child and how you relate to them. Can you commit to asking yourself, what does this moment say about me? Just this one pivot has the power to change your entire dynamic with your children. So you're saying, can you commit to asking yourself, what does this moment say about me? Now, here's my question. Based on parental legacy, Based on the fact that there is a generational legacy, a parental legacy, that anonymous poem, Children Learn What They Live, is so profound. If a parent grew up in a dysfunctional home, if they grew up with broken parents, they come from divorce, they come from alcoholic parents, they come from a violent home or whatever, where do they find the insight? the energy, the resource to do this seemingly simple thing that you're talking about? Can you commit to asking yourself, what does this moment say about me? How do they find that and get that direction when 
they're a product of broken parenting themselves. Right. I, I get this question so often in another way when people ask me, you know, your work in conscious parenting is about becoming conscious. But how do I become conscious of that that's unconscious? Here's the way you do it or, or the way it will be done to you. Our life will eventually fall apart to such a degree that we will hit the, you know, the rubber will hit the road, so to speak, which means our ego, our, our coping strategies will eventually stop working. And one day we will have this rock bottom moment, which I as a therapist wait for, not in a perverse way, but in an invitational way, because it's that rock bottom moment. So that last fight with your 16 year old, your fifth grader is dropping out of school, your 20 year old refuses to talk to you. All these pivotal moments of pain will happen where your ego is forced to surrender and you're forced to say, okay, what in me now needs to heal? So sadly or gladly, pain is the way that we come to our greatest awakening. I often say pain is the greatest portal for our transformation. But till that happens, we will keep being dysfunctional. And eventually something cracks where we wake up. And the reason I do parenting more than anything else, and I talk about parenting, is because with every other client, it's so hard to break their ego. But with the parent, I have found, because of our intense love and devotion for our children and our inability to really see them in pain, that I find that the defense of the parent cracks a little bit and I can get in there and help them to see how so much of this is a repetition of their own childhood. And finally, because they love their children so much, the parent is slightly willing to see how they are so co-creating these patterns. And, uh, you know, our children are our greatest mirrors. They are the ones for whom we will do work for, like I've never seen them do it for anyone else. So that's why I talk about conscious parenting so much. Yeah, they're certainly motivated. Most parents... You know, they'll lay down in front of a train for their child if they need to. It does motivate them. When we talk about these kids that are getting into their teens, you had a nice way of putting it a little bit ago. You said, no screens until teens. This is something that social media, the web, is just a reality in life today. I mean, it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when. When I started the Dr. Phil show, there were no social media platforms. That's how old I am and how long I've been on the air. And it's created a whole new set of toxicity, a whole new set of challenges. We've had to deal with cyberbullying and children committing suicide from that, just horrible fallout from it. When do you think, and I know every child is different, some are mature sooner than others, and every situation differs. But when do you think it's appropriate for parents to allow their child to have a smartphone or an iPad, a computer that's internet capable? You know, again, it's it's a hard one to answer because our schools are giving our kids internet iPads to do math on. But if the parent truly understood the dangers of letting their children foray into the world of the internet without supervision, guidance, controls, they would really agree with me. 
And I would say that age is no earlier than, no earlier, and I'm talking about the, the most controlled, disciplined kid, 13 or 14 years old, no earlier. And this may sound rigid and excessive, but I've seen the effects so close. I've seen children uh, being exposed to porn before their brains could you know, metabolize the information. Children being exposed to cyberbullying, being called fat, stupid, and ugly when they did not need to be exposed to that kind of, uh, you know, disrespect and slander. So there, there may be a lot of educational elements and therefore the parent needs to supervise and have strong boundaries uh, and not let the child just have this unmitigated, unmediated access to this jungle out there. And that's what we're talking about is good boundaries. But I'll tell you, and you know this, we can tell a parent have boundaries and the parent can start out by having good boundaries. But the number one fights in all the houses of parents who come to me for counseling is around the boundaries around social media. I mean, I'm negotiating these boundaries with these children as young as seven or eight. So we're not fighting about TV time anymore, where the, where the parent could hide the remote. We are talking about the child's phone. So we've given them a phone or a device too early before their time. And now we are having fights and conflicts over something we should have never given to them in the first place. So parents uh, don't feel like you're the bad guys if you have strong boundaries around social media and uh, don't be afraid to institute them because you're really allowing your children to do things like we used to do in, in childhood, like get bored, be creative, stare outside a window, you know, pick up a pen and doodle and draw. These are all things that are pro-healthy development that our children are now being robbed of because of our own and their screen addiction. Dr. Warren Farrell has been chosen by the Financial Times as one of the world's top 100 thought leaders. He's been described as the Martin Luther King of the men's movement, but you might be surprised to know that he has been a pioneer in the women's movement as well. Now, you talk about something that I think is really interesting, and I'd like you to expand on it some. You talk about how a fully involved dad develops a dad brain. Talk about what you mean by dad brain, because you're talking about really activating a nest of neurons that would otherwise be dormant. That's right. Before I started doing the research for the boy crisis, I just assumed you know, we have a motherhood instinct that gets activated, particularly when a woman is pregnant. I had no idea that there was a whole nest of dormant neurons that, depending on how a father reacts when a, a baby is born, uh, will either get activated or not. So if a father interprets his role when a baby is born as now I have to increase my focus on my work in order to be able to provide more money for the family, uh, this, the dad brain doesn't develop so effectively or so much. But if he starts focusing on, uh, to a considerable degree on the love that he feels for the child and for the infant, um, even before the child is born, touching the mother's belly, uh, investing himself emotionally in the potential for that child's uh, birth and sees himself as actively involved, the, there's a, this whole nest of neurons begins to connect. And so the dad develops a brain that's very similar to, but not identical to, uh, the, the brain that develops that we call the motherhood instinct. Um, his, his, part of his instincts are different, but his involvement, we often say mothers have unconditional love. Well, dads also have unconditional love. Dads don't so much have unconditional approval, 
but the way they love is by more conditional approval that is unconditional in its love. And so when he when he invests that way, his dad brain develops to be very similar to, but but again different also than uh, the mom the mom brain's development when a child is born. Well, you know, when I was reading about that in your book, I really recognized what you were talking about. And the book we're talking about is The Boy Crisis, by the way. I highly recommend if you're a parent or one of your children is becoming a parent or someone in your family is, you pick this up. You can find it wherever books are sold, on Amazon, wherever. It's called The Boy Crisis. It's a great read. It's an easy read, but it is very thought-provoking. And when I had my first child, Jay, I was very involved. I recognized a change in my value system and in my brain. And I was a pilot. I used to fly a certain way, never recklessly, but aggressively. I never thought twice about shooting a IFR approach down to minimums in weather or whatever. And as soon as Jay was born, I immediately started flying differently. I asked myself, why am I doing this? Why am I shooting an approach down to 200 feet and 1,800 foot runway visual range? Just because you can doesn't mean you should. You don't have the right to do this. All of a sudden, I started questioning things that I would never even have thought about before. And it was a feeling as well as a thought process. I started shortening trips and changing everything to be involved and then started coaching little league teams and everything changed and you get involvement. And like I say, it's different than mom. She's the soft place to fall and you have this unconditional love, even though you might require different things of him than a mom might. So I understand the difference between conditional but unconditional love. So you described it very, very well from what I experienced. And the outcomes that you talk about, I want to discuss. And listen, it doesn't mean that single moms cannot raise very productive, successful, well-adjusted young men, because they certainly can and do every day. And they're my heroes, these single moms that are working and raising children and doing what it takes are my absolute heroes. But there are outcomes of children that are father-deprived. It even affects something called the telomere in children. Talk about that a little bit. Yes. Um, one of the things that shocked me when I was doing the research for um, the boy crisis was the, tel- the telomere difference, that at the age of nine and a half, there was scientific studies of telomeres, There's, those are the cells in our body that contain all our preventive diseases, like they prevent cancer, prevent heart disease, and other things. And so when boys and girls have access to their fathers in a significant way, by the age of nine and a half, um, they, are, they are likely to develop, have longer telomeres. That's a, the single biggest predictor of a longer life expectancy, predicted at the age of nine and a half. So when they're dad deprived, the telomeres on average of girls and boys are 40% shorter. That is, their 
the prediction of their potential life expectancy is already at a 40% shorter rate. However, the boys, um, I, I said 40% shorter, I meant to say 14% shorter, but boys, diff the difference with boys is yet 40% <coughs> shorter than the difference with girls. And so the dad deprivation has this huge impact on the life expectancy of children at even that early age, but an even disproportionate more impact on the, the life expectancy of boys, either being considerably shorter or considerably longer, even than girls. And that's sort of a, it's almost a meta, it's both science and also a metaphor for mm -hmm. the impact of the dad deprivation on both sexes. And having said that, I also want to really reinforce what you just said a minute ago about, you know, nobody works harder probably in this world uh, than our single moms. And no one is more devoted to the love um, of, of uh, the children. And there are many things that single moms can do. One, number one, to bring the, to give their children balance. Number one is to understand the differences between dad, dad style parenting and mom style parenting and value that enough to bring the, the, the father back into the family. But if the father is absolutely hopeless and can't be brought into the family or has passed away, um, there's also things that moms can do, like get their children involved in faith-based communities, get them involved in sports. And I don't mean just sports, like team sports. I mean what I call the liberal arts of sports, which is team sports, which is pickup team sports, which are very important for developing entrepreneurs and also um, sports that require self-starting um, uh, and to perform on your own. And when children have that combination, uh, they can really de develop very effectively. Find a mentor for your children if you're a single mom, but also encourage the mentor to help your son find somebody to, to mentor. Um, because just like Dr. Phil just said, his way of thinking about the world changed the moment he had Jay in his life and his other son in his life, um, the, a boy changes. He starts saying, I can't, I have to finish my homework or I'll look like I will be a good example for that boy I'm mentoring. Um, I have to um, uh, perform well in the sport like I said I was going to or I'll look like a loser and the boy I'm mentoring will not um, pay much attention to me. It's the sense of feeling like I am needed that men and women both need, but women often get that the moment they have a child, a father has to be told his differences in the way he parents. Those differences are valued. I need you to roughhouse. I need you to, to, to press me on taking, helping taking risks that are sensible risks with our son. I need you husband, or I need you a biological dad, even if we're divorced. Yeah, and I wanted to point that out because if moms are listening and they say, well, great, I've got a son and the dad's a drug addict or he's in prison or he's just uninvolved, he's started another family and he just is not engaged in any way, so what, I'm screwed here, so my son's going to have his telomere 14% decreased and 40% more than 14% because he's a boy. So you're just telling me that I'm doomed because his dad's not here. And what you're saying is not true. You can fill that need in other ways. And you can do it by expanding your parenting style 
to continue to be the mother and the soft place to fall and all the things that mothers are so good at innately, but expand your parenting style to also include some things that are further out on the continuum than what you might normally do, and then make sure that he does have exposure to some well-selected males that can provide that influence on him, and then putting him in that role so he can take up the responsibility and become the role model as well. Both of those things. So moms that don't have a dad in the home or available, they're not left out. They can still provide that stimulus, that input, that role modeling for their child. So it's not that they're just out in the cold. Absolutely. And do pay attention to the part of the Boy Crisis book where I talk about dad-style parenting and then just get yourself involved in something like, what is dad-style parenting? It might be something like roughhousing. So don't be afraid to roughhouse with your children. Um, and because the, the normal reaction is when dad's roughhouse, it's like, oh, my God, I just feel like I have one more child to monitor here. Um, uh, and yet I don't want to be controlling and the children seem to be having fun. So I'll, I'll try to stay away. But I just intuitively feel that, you know, somebody's going to get hurt here sooner or later. And now mom is only about 99.9% likely to be right. Um, and sooner or later, you know, one of the children right. gets, gets hurt a little bit. And, and, you know, and then the mom is shocked that the dad says, okay, sweetie, you know, you can't put your uh, elbow in your sister's um, eyes like that. And, and if you do uh, that again, you're gonna, we're going to stop roughhousing. And mom goes, wait a minute, you didn't learn the lesson from the fact that the kids just got hurt. You're going to give them another chance um, and roughhouse again. But it's that other chance that dad invests in. And then when the children violate um, because they're experiencing emotional intelligence under fire, as the psychologist put it, um, and they don't pay attention to dad's um, conditions on which roughhousing will continue, and then dad stops the roughhousing when those conditions don't continue. He doesn't repeat, I, I told you you couldn't do this and give them another chance. He stops the roughhousing, and it's that that teaches the children postpone gratification. I can't have the gratification of winning um, unless I consider my sister's needs, my brother's needs. And I understand the difference between being aggressive versus being assertive. And the kids who understand, who have empathy and are able to be assertive, not aggressive, they have more friends in school, they do well. The kids that have postponed gratification do well in their subjects and in every other way. And that's what leads to the children, one of the things that leads to children being healthier. But mom, you can do that roughhousing also. And as long as you couple it with boundary enforcement and not a repeat of the, of, of the suggestion for, to be assertive versus aggressive. Yeah, and you've got to study that some because, you know, dad might say, hey, you know, rub some dirt on it. You'll be fine. You know, sometimes dad can go too far that way and... It's not always right, but, you know, mom can make some adjustments there. Dr. Michelle Borba, internationally renowned educator, recognized for her solution-based strategies to strengthening children's character, their resilience, and reducing peer cruelty. The impact of this school closure that we've had, this remote learning that we defaulted to, is going to be impacting for years to come if we don't do something to close the gap. How do we do that? Well, number one is 
Resilience is the answer to it. But I think a big mistake that parents think is there's only a set window. It's too late. Or it started when he was three. It's not too late for any of us or the entire counseling industry would go out of business. So first, we add it to the plate. And second of all, we start chunking this whole thing called resilience. When I was writing Thrivers, my goal was to look at seven traits that are highly correlated to success. Not every kid needs all seven of those. Can you tell us the seven? Oh, sure. It starts with confidence. Confidence is knowing your strengths. And let's help our kid focus more on their strengths as opposed to their weaknesses. 77% of the time, we try to fix the kid as opposed to help them learn where you're going with your strengths. You know, the simplest thing that Emmy Warner discovered, many of the children who really had extreme adversity in their life had a hobby. And the hobby, I didn't make a difference. It was uh, guitar or books or hiking. They would go to that to decompress. Dr. Phil, when I was interviewing kids and said, what's your hobby? Many of them looked at me absolutely dumbfounded. Who's got time for a hobby? So that's number one. We've got to start with that. Maybe we start being talent scouts. We walk around the house and we look at tuning into what our kids are good at as opposed to what their weakness are and start pointing that way. Another one would be empathy. We need social competence. We know that many children who are resilient have ability to connect with others. Now we've got loneliness factors and and social competence and empathy is made up of social skills. So if that's the part that's low, then let's start focusing in on how to help our kids get along. The third one is every kid in the world needs self-control coping strategies, how to get rid of that stress so it doesn't become so darn unhealthy. There's at least 30 strategies in the self-control strategies, that chapter on how to help them. So you find one. You know, here's another thing that kids said, Dr. Phil. They said, I know you're teaching us self-control strategies, but it's not like a one-time course in a health unit. You got to give us a repertoire of stuff that we can actually do in the here and now. Then we got to practice it. Like on the show, I was teaching Kira the one-two breathing, which is so simple. As soon as the stress comes in, when you start identifying what your stress signs are, you take a slow, deep breath from real deep in your abdomen, like you're riding up an elevator, keep focusing on on the breath, hold it, then slowly let it out. The exhale is twice as long as the inhale. Kids said that really works, but unless you help us practice and practice and practice and practice when we're calm... It doesn't kick in. What Dr. Bohr was talking about here, a one to two ratio of inhale and exhale, is not as simple as it sounds. It has to do all the way to the cellular level of the exchange of oxygen and calming yourself down. So you can hear something like that and go, oh, yeah, you had some lady on there talking about breathe slow. No. No, she's talking about regulating yourself. It's almost meditative. It causes you to really slow down and exercise control in the face of stress, which, again, as I said earlier, you observe yourself doing. And that's just one of several things that she talks about in this chapter on self-control. I said she wasn't a theoretician, that she puts verbs in her sentences This chapter on self-control puts your child back in command of their ship. And I can't tell you how important role-playing is. If you take these things in her self-control chapter and you actually role-play this with your children so they practice it and do it, this can be an 
absolute game changer. Oh, I, I thank you because you also nailed something else on that one that I think we're doing wrong as parents. We tell our kids these things instead of showing them. Any skill is better if you show it, not tell it, then you do it over and over again. With little kids, go teach the teddy bear. For bigger kids, go teach someone else. For bigger kids, bigger when teens, they roll their eyes at you and I'm going, come on. The most elite forces in the world called Navy SEALs. This is what they do. You can do this. All you need to do is keep practicing and practicing. The exhale's gotta be twice as long as the inhale. Yeah, And these Navy SEALs, they don't do it till they get it right. They do it till they can't get it wrong because their life depends on it. There you go. That's it. I think the other thing with parents when they're stressed is, oh my gosh, how am I going to feed that in? I got so much other things to do. Just if you take one thing like one, two breathing and you weave that in one or two minutes a day and you do it for a month, that alone is going to help your child learn a skill they're going to use the rest of their life. There's dozens of ideas in there. Don't do them all or your kid will never let you read another book. Find what works for your family and you keep working and working and working on it because your new goal as a mom or a dad is to help your learn your child learn to cope without you. That's how they're going to get through a very uncertain world. They're going to need a new skill set. Your next one is integrity. Talk about that a little bit. Well, fascinating enough is that integrity is that piece that's that strong moral code and compass. And people go, what that have to do with resilience? There's a whole bunch of different kinds of challenges. Some kinds of challenges are the stress challenges, but integrity would be the challenge like the peer pressure challenge. Is that right? Is that wrong? When we look at kids who get over that hump, they have you as the parent planting very strongly in them what our beliefs are in this family. And that means it's a lot and lot of conversations. Dr. Phil, the easiest thing I've ever seen, there was an incredible girl named Mia Dunn. Every high school teacher said, would you go figure out how that kid came to be such a kid with amazing integrity? So I pulled her aside. She was a senior in a Florida upscale school. And I said, okay, Mia, Every single high school teacher is asking me to find out how you got the integrity, how'd you do it? She laughed and she said, oh, it was how I was raised. I said, okay, how were you raised? And she said, oh, I remember when I was six, my parents called us, my two brothers and me into the family room. There was all this chart paper and marking pen. My dad said, sit down. We're going to figure out what kind of family we want to be remembered for. So we're going to brainstorm kinds of words. Mom's going to write them all down. I don't care what the words are, respectful, responsible, honest, whatever. We're going to write them all down, and then we're going to vote. At the end of, I don't know how many little bits of time, mom ran out of room on the mark, on the all of the chart paper, and dad said, let's vote. And we all voted for honest. I said, okay, easy. So how'd you remember it? She laughed, and she said, it was impossible not to. My mother must have said it 50 times a day. Remember, we're the honest duns. She dropped us off at school. Hey, remember the honest duns. We'd be reading a book. Those guys were honest duns. They said it so much, we became it. Oh, I love that quote, because that's how you instill integrity. You got to be the value system for your kids. Stand up and start embedding it in your child so they become what you want them to be. Yeah, it's so important that you have rituals and traditions in your family, and they take pride in that, where you just say, we just don't do that. We do this. And that's so important for their identity. So important. Okay, next. 
curiosity. Yes, I love curiosity. curiosity. That's that kid who thinks out of the box with ideas and people. The easiest one on that one, when you go, what the heck does that have to do with resilience? It's not to raise a kid who's an Albert Einstein creative child, but it's a child who realizes that when they're confronted with a problem, there's no problem so great that can't be solved. And that's what you're looking for, for agency. The easiest way to do that from this moment on is when your child comes home or he's sitting there with a problem, don't solve it for him. Instead, what's bugging you, sweetie pie? Say it. And then you teach him the simplest thing that there is called brainstorming 101. Keep a poker face because some of the ideas they come up with are going to be off the chart. But what's one thing you could have done? What's another thing for a kid who goes, how long do I have to do it for one minute till the sand runs out? But if you keep brainstorming and then you're all done and you go, OK, now get rid of things that aren't safe, wise or responsible. What's the one thing you're going to choose? Good. Now let's create the plan. What you're doing is creating agency. So when the child is faced with a real life problem, he's got it. And that's, again, what that thriver has. It's okay, mom. I can do it myself. Oh, there's your moment to get to a spa day, mom. I got it. Yeah, that's so important. Again, that's them observing themselves, figuring something out. And even if they're off the charts with some of them, that's so important. What we were talking about before of how we're preparing these kids in school, but it's perseverance. Yes, it's perseverance. Here's the problem, Dr. Phil, is that every parent wants the kid to persevere right this minute. And what I discovered is that of these seven traits, you got to have that self-control in order to have the buffer or self-confidence is really wonderful in order to help that kid persevere. In fact, the other thing I learned that was my aha moment is it isn't one trait or two traits, but you put any two together, they multiply the outcome. So it's like superpowers for a child. Self-control and perseverance, wonderful. Carol Dweck has got the greatest solution on perseverance. Stop praising them for the end product. What you get? Did you get the 100%? What's the grade? Instead, you make success in your house become a four-letter word, G-A-I-N. Yesterday you were here, sweetie. You got 33 right. Tomorrow you're going for 34. It's one step, one step, baby step. Success is always in steps. You never win the gold medal tomorrow. You win it in little teeny increments along the way. And, and that's the goal on perseverance. So wonderful on the science that tells us how to help our kids hang in there and not quit. The last one you mentioned is optimism, which is so important. You're watching a group of kids who have been every day for the last two years turning on a TV set and seeing how many people died today. Now you've got a live feeds of a horrific war. You've got images that are really impacting our kids. And many of them say, I just feel hopeless. I'm really worried about the world. I think this one is one of the easiest things from NYU that said, images that our kids see either elevate their empathy and their optimism, or they create doom and gloom. Okay, one of the easiest things you can do on that one, I think we don't do nearly enough. Look what the research says and apply it. Go to the back page of the newspaper every day. There's incredible, glorious stories about real kids doing wonderful stuff. Cut out the news, blow it up. Now you got another family meeting or an interesting just dinner discussion. Did you hear about true story? Here, I love this one. The two kids in Ohio, they were so worried about the neighbor next door. Empathy 101, because she's 80. She's all by herself, mom. She's so lonely. Can't we do something? What can you do, sweetie? I love mommy. What can you do, kids? Can we drag our cellos to her porch and do a cello concert? 
Good idea, said mom. They drag their cellos, go to the porch, knock on the door. They social distance. They do a little cello concert. All the neighbors come out. They're crying. Mom's crying. She puts it on Facebook. It goes live. What happens is the virtual of all the rest of the children in the world look at it and go, I can do that too. You're elevating their heart. You're seeing tuba concerts in Sacramento, flute concerts in New York. We've got to show our kids the good stuff that's doable. Now they put it in their hearts. They've got the agency. That's what builds hope.